Surprise, surprise. Now you'll recall as a brief review that in chapter 17 we saw a very in detail description of Worldwide Church of God here at the end time of Herbert Armstrong, of the Dukaches, and how that would fall apart and that God would then select a small twig and out of that build, as Haggai shows, a latter temple that will far exceed in spiritual glory that of the former temple under Herbert Armstrong. Then in 18, we see right after that that just being apart is not enough. Even though we might be physically sitting in the latter temple, that will not be enough to ensure God's blessing on us or salvation. That we have a personal responsibility and that he will judge us personally and individually. Whatever the Father did, the Son will not be judged by. Whatever the Son does, the Father will not be judged by. We have no excuse. We can't blame our problems on anyone. We will stand before God and are standing before God in judgment today. Every day we live, we are under the judgment of God because today is a day of salvation for us. And I recounted maybe a thought that a lot of people in the church have never thought of, and that is that we have this idea in our mind that we will individually go before the judgment seat of Christ and be called a sheep or a goat at the time he returns. And that is simply patently false. You and I will not do that. We will never have our sins enumerated to us because he said he will remove them as far as the east is from the west. And if we're in the grave and come up at that time, the very fact that we're resurrected means that we're in the kingdom of God. So there is no separation at that point of the people God is calling right now as sheep and goats. The very fact of us rising off the earth or coming up out of the grave to meet our Savior will show that our judgment has been positive. And there are many scriptures that so show that judgment is now upon us, the spiritual house of Israel, and will then in the millennium be for those who live then, and they will be judged day by day, and it will be decided whether they should become spirit beings or not. So, you don't have to worry and fear about that day to come, because when Christ returns, the judgment on your life will have already been made. And that judgment is now being made daily on you and me. I think we need to be acutely aware of that. Every day that you and I draw breath on this earth is a day that God is pondering our hearts, pondering our minds, our attitudes, our approach to life, and he is in the decision-making process about me, about you. And he judges us entirely upon ourselves. That's what the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18 is all about. doesn't matter whether you are part of Worldwide or whether you will be a part of this new temple that God is in the process of laying the foundation for as we speak. You will be judged on your own merit, your own life. 
Now, to go past 18, into chapter 19, we find that he returns to the same type of talk that we saw in chapter 17. The same analogy is addressed. He does tell us it's an individual thing in chapter 18, and then he says, why will you die? Pay attention. Be aware. We cannot sleep. We must take this personal, brethren, each and every one of us as an individual sitting here who has been baptized as a part of God's church is right now being judged according to Ezekiel 18. On his own merit, on his own growth, on his own overcoming. Everything he does, day in and day out. So he says that we are to create or make a new heart and a new spirit. Why would we die? The spirit and attitude we had in Worldwide, frankly, was moth-eaten. We were Laodicean. We were lethargic. We did not have our attention on God. We had our attention running many, many different directions. Some of the things that we were doing or allowing ourselves to do maybe were not idols per se, but on the other hand, I mean, is baseball an idol? Was anything wrong with playing baseball or even watching baseball? Is there anything sinful about it? Is there anything that breaks the commandments of God? Well, not directly. And I just picked whatever came to mind. Is it wrong to watch a baseball game? Probably not. On the other hand, how often do we do it? How much time do we waste? It's not a matter that baseball is wrong, but if you spend a lot of your time watching baseball, that is time you could have spent pursuing spiritual pursuits, perhaps planting your own vine in your own fig tree, for instance, and doing things that would lead toward the kind of life God wants us to live. And if we are wasting time that could be devoted to learning a proper way of life, then that in itself becomes an idol because it is wasting time that could be devoted to God's way, you see. So there are a lot of things in our society that, per se, might not be wrong, but how much of our time do they take? How much of our time do we waste when God says in the Scriptures, Thessalonians, to redeem the time? Don't let the time get away from us. This is our time of judgment. Do we approach it that way every day when we get up? I am being judged today for eternal life based on what I think and do today. What if you picked up Tuesday or Thursday or Sunday as the day that was pivotal, let's say this next week, the day that might be pivotal in God's judgment of you. Would you live it any differently than you might have last Tuesday? Would you think differently? Would you be a little more concerned? If an angel came and told you, Tuesday is going to be the pivotal day in your judgment. I just talked to the Lord about you, and that's what he said. He says, I don't know, I've been on this one for a while. I'm going to give him until Tuesday. 
and the angel disappears. You might look at Tuesday a little differently than you have before. Now, I don't think it'll happen that way. That's just kind of a hypothetical thing. But it is certainly a day-to-day thing with us. Why will we die? Do we have a new heart and a new spirit, a new attitude each day? Lamentations, it says God gives us a new chance every day. We don't dwell in the past. We don't live in the past. We have a new day every day. A new day for God to ponder our heart. So it's incredibly important that we approach each day that way, lest we die. And then he says as a parting shot there, I don't have any pleasure of those that die. I don't want them to die. I want them to live. So he says, turn around and live. Live a godly life every day that your judgment is being made. So it is extremely personal here. You can't blame anybody or anything. Your own parents, your own children, grandparents, the president, or the preacher. If you don't make it, you have only yourself to blame. Nobody can change you but you. That's why God makes it very, very personal here. Being in a particular uh, congregation is not the key. The key is your attitude and what you're doing and are about to do. So then he goes back to looking at the church again here in chapter 19. It says, Moreover, take you up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Now notice he doesn't say the king of Israel. I'm going to, for a moment, flip back here to the book of Micah. We've been here before, but I think it's good to look at again for a moment here as we get into this. Micah 4, uh, verse 6. He talks about how he will assemble her that's crippled and her that he is afflicted. And I'll make her that halted a remnant that was cast far off, a strong people. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth and forever. But it will continue once it starts forevermore. Skip down to verse 9. It says, Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. And that's where the church is today. Our king, our counselor, Herbert Armstrong, has perished. We have no one to lead us. So he doesn't say king here in Ezekiel 19. He says, take up a lamentation for the princess. Not the princess, the princess. Those who were under the king, if you will, who provided the rest of the leadership. And when he died, what happened? I think this takes it right back to the church, as in chapter 17. So take up a lamentation. In other words, God is not real happy at all. That's what a lamentation is. If you read the book of Lamentations, you'll see that it is entirely a dirge, a lament. Sad day for the princes of Israel. So the leadership that was left in the church, God is not happy with and says, lament for it. It's a bad deal. And say, what is your mother? Now, the church is 
the mother of us all. That's made very clear in the book of Galatians. What is your mother? A lioness. A lioness is a formidable animal. And Worldwide Church of God, as the instrument God was using to call a people that he might work with, could have been a very important animal. She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. So here we are, a church in a jungle, if you will, and I think a lioness is a proper uh, analogy here. We have a jungle around us of beasts of the field, including lions, that would eat us alive if possible. And we'll try. But she was like one of the young lions. She nourished her children. She nourished us as we were converted, came into the knowledge of the truth, and began living that way. And she brought up one of her whelps. It became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey. It devoured men. I think this takes us right back to Joseph the Koch. He was talking about it in chapter 17. And she thought he would be okay. We thought he might be okay for the most part when Herbert Armstrong died. You know, the old lion died. A young lion came in and took over. It learned to catch the prey and it devoured men. There are a lot of people that were devoured by the new Tukach regime. Spiritually died as a result of the spiritual famine and pestilence and disease that affected the church after he took over. Many died spiritually or drifted away and are in danger of death. Many, many will go into the tribulation and die there as a result of the watering down and the return to Egypt that Joseph Tukach Sr. did. Now, if you go to the commentaries, this talks about some of the kings of Israel, but it's an end-time prophecy once Israel and Judah were both already in captivity long since. It's talking about today. It's talking about us. We need to take all this personal. We need to grasp it and understand it because it does affect us upon whom the ends of the earth have come. So he learned to catch the prey. He devoured men. The peoples also heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. Didn't the church go right back to Egypt? Certainly did. There are many warnings not to go to Egypt or Babylon. Now, when she saw that she had waited, and her hope was lost, we waited on Joseph the Cox to lead us in the right way. It didn't happen. Our hope was lost. We began to come apart, it began to scatter and splinter. She waited and saw that her hope was lost. Then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. I would say that the analogy here then would be Joe Jr. Took another one of her young men. And Joseph Secott was a young man when he first came in, too, senior. But here's a young man. Made him a young lion. And he went up and down among the lions. He became a young lion and learned to catch the prey and devoured men. He continued what his father had started. Now, there may be an overall analogy to Israel here, and some of our leaders leading us back to the world and away from God. But the first message is to you and to me. It's primarily written to us. 
So we have to draw this down personally and to the church. So he went up and down among the lions. He learned to devour men as well. There's a lot of blood, spiritual blood on the head of Joseph Jr. and his brother lions. And he knew their desolate palaces. And he laid waste their cities. Didn't he lay waste the church? Didn't he cause the congregations to fall apart in all the cities around the world? Worse and worse and worse? Yes, he did. And the land was desolate, and the fullness thereof by the noise of his roaring. All the things he was saying and preaching led a lot of people astray, and it was fundamental in causing the church to break up. Like a roaring lion. That's kind of like Satan, isn't it? I think there's a good analogy there. Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And even though the Takachis, neither one, I think, probably thought of themselves as trying to kill and destroy, that was actually what happened. They didn't know they were lions. They thought they were shepherds. But instead of leading the sheep to God, they tore them, chewed them up. And this is the princess. May not be just those two men. We'll see that a little later on. But I think it is specifically speaking of those two people. Verse 8. Then the people set against him on every side from the provinces, from around the world, spread their net over him. He was taken in their pits, and they put him in ward in chains, and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holes that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. Didn't the advisors and the men around, Joe Sr. and then later Joe Jr., lead them into Babylon? Yes, they did. They went to Fuller Seminary and other Protestant institutions and learned Protestantism and led those men right back into the religions and the paganism of Babylon. So one analogy says Egypt, the other Babylon, and Egypt and Babylon are both sin to us. The culture, the way of this world is sin to us. And his voice, Joe Jr.'s, is no, no more going to be heard upon the mountains of Israel. As far as the church is concerned, essentially he's been silenced and may be totally silenced before long. So then it describes the mother a little bit once it goes beyond there. Your mother is like a vine in your blood, or as my margin says, in your quietness or in your likeness. Your mother is like a vine in your likeness. You as individuals and your mother are a lot alike. Like mother, like daughter. Okay. Planted by the waters. We were given good doctrine. As it says that it was planted by good waters by Herbert Armstrong originally. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. So the church was fruitful in that sense. Produced a lot of children. Many branches. by reason of many good doctrines. And she had strong rods for the scepters of them that bore rule. There were a lot of pretty strong leaders, it seemed, in worldwide. Uh, by reason of the doctrine given, they stood up and were pretty strong at one point. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches, and she appeared in her height with a multitude of her branches. So it branched out. It used it more as a vine in chapter 17. And in Isaiah 5, and here it talks about a vine, but also a tree. But 
Ezekiel 17 says it kind of spread out. It never did grow into the stately tree that it should be, even though there were some thick branches that could have supported an awful lot more than it did support. She appeared in her height with a multitude of her branches, but she was plucked up in fury. God says that he would spew the church out of his mouth. So God plucked her up, jerked her out of the ground, away from the good doctrine, and scattered her. And the east wind dried up her fruit. The east wind was symbolic in ancient times of a hot, dry wind from the east. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. Those who seemed strong, those who seemed like good leaders, withered and burned. Many of them went right back into Babylon and Egypt with her. Some of them separated out and yet have not provided the kind of leadership that God's people need today to help them understand that being what we were in worldwide was by no means good enough. And recreating that atmosphere is not enough. We must go far above and beyond what we were. Think about what you were 20, 30, 40 years ago as a member of the Church of God. What were you like? What did you think about? Where did you go? What did you do? What did you spend your time on? Whatever it was, it wasn't enough. Whatever it was, it was not a level of righteousness that God approved. Whatever any of us were doing, created fury in our Father in Heaven. So much so that he spewed us out like vomit. He became nauseous and couldn't hold it down and spewed us out. We have to understand that. So I don't know what you were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I can only look back in my own past because I don't know yours. You can only look in your own past because you don't know anybody else's. And see what level of spirituality you were. And realize that there has to be a great deal of growth and overcoming and change from then. Whatever we were, God did not approve. So she was plucked up in fury and cast down. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. The fire that went through the church pretty much destroyed the leadership. And those that remain are pitifully weak. And pitifully trying to restore us to what we were, not make us more spiritual and more godly than we were then. They're looking back. They're not looking forward. Looking back to worldwide is not going to gain us a thing. Looking forward to being more godly than we were then. Looking forward to the right kind of blessing from God and becoming a stately cedar is what we should desire. People are not destroyed for lack of hindsight. The people are destroyed for lack of vision of the future. 
hindsight 2020 in some respects. We can look back and should be and say, hey, I can't be what I was. I've got to be different than what I was. God expects that of us. You know, why do you punish a child? Why do you do it? Because you didn't like the child's attitude. You didn't like their actions. You wanted them to have a different approach, a different spirit, a different mind than what they were in. So, the purpose of punishment is to change attitude, to change approach, to create a right and clean and good spirit, one of friendliness, of love, of smiling, as opposed to pouting and fuming and fussing and crying and rebelling. That's what punishment is all about. Maybe we can understand that on a level with our children. It's, you know, you just don't like the attitude the child is in, so you take measures to change the attitude, and sometimes they have to be pretty violent measures. Well, God didn't like the attitude we were in. So he took some pretty violent measures to shake us up, to change our attitudes. Now, if that doesn't happen, he has far more in store that will create that. Remember, all through this book, to this point now, we have seen, I guess, dozens of times where God says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. They'll know that I am God. So this whole book of Ezekiel, the theme throughout the whole book, is that we, in the church, come to understand that God really is God. And that Israel ultimately understand that God is God. And that the whole world ultimately understand that God is God. And we happen to be right at the crossroads whereby he is going to begin to show in ways that cannot be denied that he is God. Some will pick up on it now. And they will begin to fear the eternal, which is the beginning of wisdom, and will begin to change their attitudes in their lives. And some will go on as if they have heard nothing, and they will go into the tribulation, and the pressure will get stronger and greater, and they will die there. But they will know that God is God. Before God is through with what he is just on the edge of doing. Most people on this earth will die. Far more than 10%, I feel. I mean 90%. Far more than 90% will die. If you take six and a half billion people, which is roughly what we have today, and reduce it to the figure that Daniel gives, which seems to be the key, when Christ comes back, he'll sit, sit down to judge 100 million. It's a figure he gives. 100 million is a whole lot less than 10% of 6.5 billion. In fact, there are probably, what, four, five, six hundred thousand, uh, six hundred million Israelites, I would say today at least. And he says 10% of Israel will be saved out of the tribulation and live into the millennium. A little less than 10%, a small remnant. But if there's, let's say, 
pick a number out of the air. Let's say there's 600 million Israelites on earth today. That would mean 60 million Israelites then, roughly, would survive. That means out of all these hordes of Gentiles, maybe only 40 million would survive to come up to a total of 100 million. So the earth, the majority of people, it would appear to me, are going to be Israelites when the millennium starts. Not all, but a majority. Blood Israelites. Well, I don't know how much blood makes a blood Israelite. Because we all got a certain amount of mixture in us uh, of everything, I suppose. I certainly do. So we shall see. But understand, when you reduce six and a half billion to a hundred million, that's an awful lot of death and destruction. It's more than even the New World Order plans. They plan to only reduce it by 90%. God is going to reduce it by even more than that. And when he gets done shaking this earth, everyone is going to know that he is the eternal one. There can be no equivocation at that point. They may rebel even yet, but they're going to know it, whether they accept it or not. He's going to make it known in no uncertain terms. So right now, the church is being withered, blown away. Pretty soon, this nation is going to be blown away. And then shortly after that, this world is going to be blown away. Where have we built our house? On sand? On the rock of Christ? How much wind will it take to blow you and me away? I hope there cannot be enough wind to blow us away. If we're building on the rock, on Christ, we won't be blown away. We've seen our friends and our relatives blown away, haven't we? Just by the first round. Just by the breakup of the church. We've seen a lot of our friends and relatives go under. We haven't. Thankfully, we may be clinging on, and the wind may be blowing us pretty hard, but we haven't gone under. We haven't been blown away. Can you hang on through the next round? How much are you depending on God? Will you be protected from the next round? Because the wind is going to increase. You get stronger. Verse 14, fire has gone out of a rod of her branches, which has devoured her fruit, so, so that she has no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. Isn't that where we sit today? There is no one that we can all look to as the church that we would say, there's the leader. We have some who say they're that, but we don't have any one that we would all recognize as that, do we? Not at all. Someone will stand up and say, I'm the apostle. I'm the leading evangelist. I'm the whatever. I'm that prophet. Whatever they want to say. But God has not provided power. God has not provided might. God has not provided open doors. God has not provided the kind of leadership that we would all recognize in anyone. Remember the story of Joshua when he went into the 
promised land with Israel. And God told him once they crossed, that they would circle Jericho and the walls would fall, and that he would be magnified in the eyes of Israel. And that they would look upon him the way they had looked upon Moses throughout the days of his life. And that if he would obey God, he would have good success. Well, until God magnifies somebody, all the bragging that anybody could do is just hot air and part of the wind that withers the church. Until God magnifies a leader, puts them in a place that we can recognize that it's all so much vanity and ego, and it matters not. So a fire has gone out of a rod of her branches, which has devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation, and shall be for a lamentation. Wouldn't it be nice if, let's say, Herbert Armstrong in the analogy was like Moses, and Joshua came along, and God magnified him in a way that Israel could see God is working there. Wouldn't it have been nice? these last 20-some years had God done that. But he didn't, did he? And we've been moving around anchorless, not knowing what to do or where to go or who to listen to. People listen here a while and they'll listen there a while and they'll listen somewhere else a while, don't they? They blow back and forth. And it's a lamentation. It's a sadness. So this prophecy is being fulfilled right before our very eyes this very day. Chapter 20, and it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Eternal and sat before me. So, Ezekiel got their attention in some way, and here came the elders of Israel. Now, I think we talked about the princes in chapter 19, probably the Tkachis in this analogy. And now, other elders come to inquire of Ezekiel about God. Now, let's see what God's attitude is here. Not just those two, which is easily, it's easy to paint them with a brush, isn't it? As turning from God and rebels. That's easy to do. Well, what about the elders that are left? What about the other leaders, so-called? Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel. Talk to the ministry, Okay? Say to them, thus says the eternal God. Tell them here is what God has to say. Are you come to inquire of me? Are you coming? Say say to these men, are, are you coming to talk to Ezekiel about me? Ask them this question. As I live, or by my life, says the eternal God, I will not be inquired of by you. When the elders of the church today, the church is, the splinters of worldwide, go before God, he will not hear them. He has turned his face from us, has he not? He has turned a deaf ear to us, if you please, and he will not hear. That is the position we're in. And when anyone tells you that he has the ear of God, 
in the eye of God, in the face of God, smiling upon his apostleship, you had better run like the wind. Because it isn't so. It says so right here. As we repent and turn to God with our whole heart, he says he will turn his face back to those who do so. So this whole thing is contingent. God is not smiling on you and me, just as he is not smiling on other splinters elsewhere in the way that we would like, is he? I think that we have shown as a group, and as individuals, therefore, that we want to go his way, that we're trying to change, that we want to have a godly society instead of stay stuck in Egypt and Babylon. And he's told us to break those bands in Isaiah 52 and to put on righteous garments. Hard for us to do. We don't clean up very easily. Hopefully we'll clean up pretty nicely. But those who will do so will begin to turn his ear and he will begin to hear their cry. And he says that he'll forgive their sins in one day and will begin to bless them. We have that opportunity because we have this knowledge and this understanding. But there's no way we can say of ourselves, we're the ones. We can't do that. We can pray, and we can hope. We can live. We can have visions and dreams of the future based on the Scripture. That we can do. And we can hope that God begins to turn his ear and his eye to us and let his face smile upon us. That's what we can do. Because he gives us a vision of the future. And if we take that vision and do something with it, we will not perish. But God says, overall, <laughs> I'm not going to listen. I will not be inquired of by them. I'm not going to even listen to their question. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? And the answer is yes. Ezekiel was put in a position where he had to make a judgment on them. And what did God say that judgment would be and what Ezekiel should do? It says, cause them to know the abominations of their fathers. Now, our church fathers turned to abomination and never turned completely to God. And we can go all the way back to our fathers in ancient Israel. And they, for the most part, never obeyed God. Individuals did here and there. The whole country, the whole of Israel, never happened. Maybe for very short periods, most of them did. But not many for very long. So he said, Ezekiel, go all the way back through the fathers. Let them know. And he does that here in this chapter. I want to go for a moment to Zechariah 1, because this is speaking very specifically, in Zechariah 1, of the birth of the new temple here in the latter days. Zechariah began in the middle, in terms of its uh, chronology, of the book of Haggai. You see the months and days that happen the same year. 
So as Haggai was in the middle of his ministry, Zechariah began to write as well. The eighth month, the second year of Darius. Uh, Haggai had started in the sixth month of the second year of Darius. So two, two months after Haggai addressed Israel, Zechariah did. And it says God remembers is what Zechariah means. Let's begin in chapter 1, verse 2. The Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. Now, he's addressing who? Ancient Israel here? No. He's addressing the end-time people who are slated to found the new latter temple. Those are the specific people he's talking to in Haggai and Zechariah. So he's talking to Specifically, you and me. You want to know if you're named in Scripture? Yes, you are. You're part of this end-time work that God is doing on the earth. He's called you by name. None of us were called without the express recognition of the Father. No man can come to him except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So God the Father drew you. He drew me. to hear these words and to listen. So he's speaking to the remnant of the church right here today. He's been so displeased with your fathers, whether it be ancient Israel or even our church fathers. He makes it very clear he was a little displeased in chapter 2. Or no, still in chapter 1 he says that. I was a little displeased and the heathen came in and I became very displeased. So he wasn't happy with the way things were under Herbert Armstrong, but he came sorely displeased under the Vicacias. So we can look back that far. Verse 3, Therefore say ye to them, Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, Turn you to me, says the Eternal of Hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Eternal of Hosts. So as I said earlier, the elders of the church can look to God right now. Any of us can. And maybe we don't have his ear, his eye, or his face. But he says, if we will turn it around, then he will turn it around. Turn you to me, and I will turn to you. This is where we are right now. Be not as your fathers. Don't be like worldwide watch. Unto whom the former prophets of Christ saying, thus says the eternal host, turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. Herbert Armstrong became a prophet of God in that sense, and told us to turn away from the world and to turn to God, didn't he? Well, we came part way out and stopped. Now we've got to come all the way out. They did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? Herbert Armstrong didn't live forever. Most of the evangelists are gone, or they're impotent today, spiritually. God is not working through them. He will not even be inquired of them or listened to them. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? Did not all these prophecies back here take hold of worldwide? Because we weren't living up to what God wanted? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do to us, 
According to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. Look at chapter 18 of Ezekiel. It says we'll all be judged individually by what we do. Not our fathers, not our sons, but what we do. So God has dealt with us that way. So you better listen to what he said to the father, to the elder, to the fathers, anciently and today. And he does take it back into ancient times as we move on down here. But we can look specifically at our fathers in the church and see that they were not what they should have been either. If you don't think that's true, then we get to chapter 34, which you all know by heart. Why do you know it by heart? Because you've experienced what we're talking about here today. And you've gone there to Jeremiah 23 and to Malachi, and you've seen that the ministry has not been what it ought to be. We haven't done right by you. And we must repent, too. So say to them, verse 5, Thus says the eternal God, In the day when I chose Israel and lifted up my hand to the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up my hand to them, saying, I am the eternal your God. And they said, I will deliver you. Oh, you're not the God of frogs or fleas? Or the God of crocodiles? No, no, I am the eternal God who created you. They'd forgotten him, didn't know who he was. So he had to tell them, I am one of his names. And the day that I lifted my hand to them to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. If you want to know where God had Israel, look around and find on this earth the glory of all lands. That is the promised land that God appointed Moses for. Then said I to them, Cast you away, every man, the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Look around. Let's get a different viewpoint here. Before, we thought our culture and our society was okay and that this was a Christian nation. He says, look around and see that this nation is not a Christian nation. This nation is not following God. The church has not been truly following God in the way he wants to be followed. You can have a husband, and you can be married to him. But are you following him in the way that he wants to be followed? Are we following God in the manner he prescribes? Or do we have our own way of worshiping God? This book, every word of it, tells us in detail how he wants to be worshipped, how he wants to be followed. His son came to this earth and walked it for 33 and one half years as a physical human being without ever taking a misstep. Something none of us can say. And he set an example that we should walk in his steps. Very high standard. We've all sinned and come short of that glory. 
But we need to be headed in that direction and begin to walk as he walked. Not sort of cross paths with him once in a while as we wander through this world. But to walk through this world the way he walked through this world. That'll set us apart from the world. We won't look like this world. But he gave us the glory of all lands, and he said, Don't be defiled in the promised land that I give you. But what did we do? We became defiled. And he gave us the truth in the church of God. That's a promised land. And we defiled it. We were not the proper mother. We were not the proper children. So God is spanking our behinds. Spewing us out of his mouth. But they rebelled against me, verse 8, and would not hearken to me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. The context all through here is, first of all, speaking of the church. He's already stood us out. He shoot us up, and we're planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground, verse 13 of the previous chapter. And he's about to extend his fury. The winds are about to get stronger. Come in, brethren, out of the wind. Don't rebel against God's way and try to hang on to this world in its way. Verse 9, but I worked for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were. He says, I don't want my name. I call these people by my name. I call them out of the world. I wanted them to look a lot like me. I wanted them to be my children. And he says, I'm working overtime here, people. I don't want my name to be defamed. If I place my name on you, then I expect you to follow me. To look like me, to talk like me, to act like me. I'm working overtime to be sure this happens. I don't want my name to be polluted before the heathen, among whom they were. We are living among the heathen. And if God says he doesn't want us to look like the heathen, then we had better wake up, look around, and see what is around us, and among who we are in this world, and say, I'm not going to be like this world. I'm going to be like God. Don't be polluted with what's around you. In whose sight I made myself known to them, and bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. He says, you're going to know I'm God. And they didn't know it, didn't know who he was. And then he led them out of there and parted the Red Sea. And they said, wow, you must be God. Yeah, that's kind of the point, fellas. He is about to do the same thing very shortly on this earth. He is going to show his church and the world from the east to the West, that he is God. He is going to make bare his holy arm before all peoples and nations so that they will know that God is God. 
And it isn't very far off. He will do it in ways, as he says in Jeremiah, that will make the Red Sea look like a mud puddle. He will do it in such a way, in such dramatic fashion, that we will forget Egypt and the Red Sea. He has something in mind that will blow the minds of the church in the world. Believe that, because Scripture says it. You can read it in Isaiah 45. You can read it in Isaiah 52. You can read it all through the prophecies. You can read it all through the book of Ezekiel, where he says, They shall know that I am God. It will be an undeniable fact. Nearly all of them will rebel against it and will hate it and hate his people through whom he does this. And they will make war with them and try to kill every last one of them. And only by the grace of Almighty God can those who look a lot like him be saved. You and I, today, have the opportunity to understand this, to react to it, do something about it, and be included among those whom God preserves and sets on a hill as a light to the world. We need to have vision of what can be and what will be, vision and hope that will be part of it. We've been disappointed many times. We've set dates over the years. We've been disappointed. But I believe God is going to make very soon His arm bare before the world. And they will know from sea to sea, from east to west, that He is God. I don't think we have long to wait. He, he recounts the Red Sea all through the Scriptures. But he tells us, you'll forget the Red Sea when I do what I'm about to do. That's how it's going to be. Verse 10, Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. God is bringing us out of the Egypt of this world. He's going to bring all his faithful remnant into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. God is going to take a remnant people into the wilderness, and he's going to explain his laws and his ways and his judgments in a better way than it has ever been explained before. He is going to restore all things to those people. Verse 12, Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be assigned between me and them. Remember Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 31? That they might know that I am the Eternal that sanctified them. The Sabbaths, the feast days, are there as a sign that we are set apart by God. There are very, very, very few people on this earth that keep His Sabbaths, His annual Sabbaths, and keep them correctly. Very, very few people. How many churches do you know of 
but keep the annual holy days of God. Some people keep the Sabbath, or sort of keep at it. Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, different ones, Jews, or those who say they're Jews. The Jews keep the holy days, too. They keep them for the wrong time. They keep them in the wrong manner. They add all kinds of paganism to them, so that doesn't count. It's only the called-out ones at the end who have a chance of doing it right. So God is talking to us here, the called-out ones. He's not talking to anybody else. He can't be. No one else is doing it. For those who will follow him at the end, his Sabbaths and his holy days are very, very important. He brings them up, that there to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Eternal that sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbath they greatly polluted. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. We tried to keep God the center of attention in the holy days back in the 40s, 50s, 60s as a church. And then we began to go on cruises for the feast. We began to go to Branson and to Orlando and all the hot spots of the culture of this world. And we greatly polluted what God had said to do. He said, come before me and keep the feast and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So instead we came and worshipped Ferris wheels and country singers and Disneyland and Disney World and cruise ships and whatever. So the attention was not really on God, but he had become sort of a bridesmaid, if you will. And the center of our attention became entertaining ourselves. We polluted his feasts. We didn't go to truly worship God. We went to find a mate. We went to be entertained, to play golf, to eat out and gain 13 pounds or whatever. Now, we should enjoy the feast. I'm not saying we shouldn't eat and drink, as the Bible says. But what's our focus? What's our attention? And our attention in worldwide was not what it should have been. So we have some repenting to do. All right, where was it? They greatly, greatly polluted, and I will pour my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I worked for my namesake, that it should not be polluted before the heathen, in whose sight I brought them out. So God said, I'll work with them. Yet also I lifted up my hand to them in the wilderness, that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all that. So they're all, their carcasses would all fall in the desert. Their children would go in, but they not be wiped out, and his namesake might not be polluted. But he didn't let them go in. I would hate to come to the point that I, whom God called earlier in life, would miss out, and my children, who don't really know God for the most part today, might enter in, and I would die and my carcass be tossed in the wilderness. 
But that's what we're in danger of doing because God is working with this generation, not the next. He's calling a very few of our children now. Not very many. Not very many. This generation will not die out. You gray heads and bald heads. Before Christ has his kingdom set up on this earth. The latter temple will be built while there are still old men around. We can compare it to what it was at its height, which I think was back in the 50s and early 60s, before it began to deteriorate rapidly. Let's not fall in the wilderness and not be there to see our children when God converts them. That would be a tragedy. Verse 16, because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Anything that is either against God or simply keeps us away from God by wasting our time. You know, it's easy to waste time. But that time is judgment time. We need to look at the picture as if we're sitting in a courtroom being judged. Because that is what we are in. We are now being judged. Verse 17, Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destroying them, neither did I make them an, an end of them in the wilderness. But I said to their children in the wilderness, Walk you not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. Some of the things that the ministry did, our fathers in that sense in the church, were pretty bad. But we can't repeat those things. We've got to come out of her and do better than we have in the past. I am the eternal your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Doesn't it tell us all through the New Testament, not hearers of the word, but the doers only? That's what God's saying right here. It's a modern-day message, New Testament, basically. Paul and Peter just quoted from here. Verse 20, And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you. So God's going to say, we have something in common here. You're keeping my Sabbaths and my holy days in the way that I want them kept. You're making me the king, or recognizing him as the king. And you're doing, in that time, the way I want you to do. You're spending time in prayer. You're spending time in Bible study and meditation and godly fellowship on his Sabbath of these days. Not thinking your own thoughts, doing your own pleasures, but seeking God. That's what it's all about. Verse 21, notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes. They neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. His Sabbaths, his holy days, is what set us apart from the world. You know, the world says you shouldn't murder, says you shouldn't lie or steal, doesn't it? The churches will agree with basically all the commandments of God except the fourth. They hate the fourth. 
They hate the Sabbath. So God made it a test commandment, a sign. And we took that sign, and we didn't do it the way he wanted it done, so even it wasn't much of a sign. We were sort of going through the motions, but we weren't there worshiping God the way he wanted, obviously. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them, and he has, and we have been scattered. So we'd better look at the feast differently than we used to. We'd better look at the weekly Sabbath differently than we used to. It's not a day to go out and go to dinner on the Sabbath, sit in a worldly restaurant. It's not a day to watch television. It's not a day to read novels. It's not a day to do everything but your weekly work. It's not a day to think your own thoughts. It's a day to devote to God. Sometimes we let our conversations stray far away from where they should be, right here at our own potlucks. It's easy to do. We can stray to jobs and all kinds of things that, you know, and worldly pursuits and movies we probably shouldn't have seen that we want to tell about or, you know, whatever. We need to be more careful than we are. And I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to all of us, me included. Sometimes I let my conversations stray away from where they really ought to be. God is not happy with that. Verse 22, Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and worked for my namesake, that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen in whose sight I brought them forth. I lifted up my hand to them also in the wilderness, that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them throughout the countries. He's done that with the church. Because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, had polluted my Sabbaths, and their eyes were after their father's idols. So God is saying, look at the way you approached the Sabbath and his feasts before we were scattered. And realize that that was one of the primary reasons he scattered us. And realize that the way we were keeping it must have had some lacks, must have had some faults. But it was not what he wanted us to live up to. It wasn't good enough for God. Might have been good enough for us. It wasn't good enough for him. Verse 25. Wherefore I gave them also statutes that were not good and judgments whereby they should not live. God didn't want to saddle them with animal sacrifices and all kinds of things like that. Jeremiah 7.22. He says, I didn't even speak to them when they came out of Egypt about all those things. Those things were added afterward because they wouldn't obey me. He's going to bring it again in the millennium, animal sacrifices. To begin to show people that they need to obey God. Animal sacrifices, doing all that, was a very difficult and onerous subject or, or uh, exercise. All we have to do is pray and ask forgiveness through Christ. They had to go sacrifice an animal or a bird. The feast days, they were spent slaughtering animals. If you've ever slaughtered animals, you learn that's hard work. They had to do it every day. And more on the Sabbaths and holy days. 
That wasn't good. Shouldn't have had to have done that. But because of disobedience, not serving God the way he wanted to be served, it had to be done. I polluted them in their own gifts, and that they caused to pass through the fire all that opened the womb. We do it by abortion today, instead of doing it literally throwing them in the fire to Molech. That I might make them desolate. To the end, what's the purpose in all this? That they might know that I am the Lord. It always comes back to that. We've forgotten that God is really God. He's not just a superhuman. He's not an unidentified flying object. He hung the moon. He hung the stars. He created the earth and birds and flowers and water and air and people. God did that. Everybody's got to come to know that there's a creator. He's God. Therefore, Son of Man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the eternal God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me, and that they have committed a trespass against me. For when I had brought them into the land, for which I lifted up my hand to give it to them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees, and they offered their, sacri their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There also they made their sweet savor and poured out their drink offerings. God gave us this beautiful land right here, America, didn't he? What did we do? We brought in Protestantism, Protestantism and Catholicism and Hinduism and Islam and Islam and you name it. And it polluted the name of God in the promised land. And I said to them, and we did it in the church. He even brought us into a promised spiritual land. And we brought the thinking and worldly ways right here. And have not been able to separate ourselves from the ways of this world. It's religion. It's foods. It's entertainment. It's waste of time. Perhaps even it's technology. We're allowing our children to be sucked in by the electronic goo-gaws of this world that promotes wrong attitudes. And we ourselves invite far too much. We've taken something beautiful that God gave us, and we've polluted it greatly, both the country and the church. Verse 29, Then I said to them, what is the high place where you go? And the name thereof is called Mamma to this day, which means high or high place or an elevation or the heights of Baal, east of Jordan, which was in Moab and Ammon. The heathen area. It doesn't say Alabama, but just Bama. But Alabama and Mississippi and all 50 states are part of the high place to Satan that we live in. Wherefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus says the eternal God, Are you polluted after the manner of your fathers, and commit you whoredom after their abominations? Did we do as ancient Israel, and did we do as the church came to be? For when you offer your gifts, when you make your sons to pass through the fire, you pollute yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. 
you don't have to sacrifice your children by throwing them into a burning fire. This society and culture is a burning fire of Satan's hell that we allow our children to be a part of. And don't stop it. Can you say you're going to come talk to me and question me, God says? Shall I be inquired of you by of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the eternal God, I will not be inquired of by you. The elders of the church today, around the world, in the splintered church of God, he says, I will not listen to. Unless we come out of this world, God will not hear us. If we do come out, he will hear us. That which comes into your mind shall not be at all that you say, we will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. We're not going to worship false gods. As I live, says the eternal God, surely with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people, and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. God is going to begin to gather his people, and it's going to be done with power. It's not going to be just a trickling in of an individual here and there. It's going to be with a mighty arm. I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. God is going, Christ might even appear face to face with us here at the end. Remember, he told the disciples, later the apostles, I will not speak often with you. He did come and teach Paul directly in the wilderness for three years. I suspect he will do some of the same here at the end. That he may come and plead face to face. He will not let his name be expunged from the earth. He will work to a small group of people. Like as I pleaded with your fatherness in the fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, says the eternal God. What did he do? He came on Mount Sinai, probably a volcanic mountain, thunder and lightning and volcanic activity. And I said, oh, don't let him talk to us. We'll listen to Moses. Well, we haven't been, but we will. <laughs> you know? Just... just just shut off the thunder there, God. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah, Moses is a good guy. We'll listen to him now. How far do you want to take it? I will cause you to pass under the rod. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. What do you do with a rod? You, as a shepherd, you held it out. And the sheep will jump into the fold. And you count them and inspect them as they came under the rod. You'd make sure they didn't have maggots under their tails or terrible cuts or pink eye or whatever she'd get. They passed under the rod and looked at each one as it went by. God said, I'm going to look at you. You know what Ezekiel 18 says? You'll all be judged individually. There went your daddy the ram. You won't be judged by him. He's going to look at you individually. 
You'll pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. We accepted the bond of the covenant of how we would think and live when we were baptized. He says, you're going to have to come under the rod, and you're going to have to live by that covenant you made with me. And that covenant is this whole book, every word of it. To bring every thought into the captivity of God, of Christ. And I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me. God says, as you come under the rod, I'm going to check you out. If there are any rebels there, I'm going to spit them out. God will separate the sheep from the rebels. Those who will disobey him from those who will obey him. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the eternal. Says it again. Over and over and over. The final purge, perhaps, of the rebels will be when it comes time to go to a place of safety. He will gather his remnant together to form the latter temple in towns without walls, a Jerusalem as towns. And then they will be attacked. Satan and his beast power will try to wipe them out. And then it'll be time to flee. And he said, pray that you be accounted worthy. Because that's a separation that is yet ahead of us. He'll purge out the rebels. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the eternal God, go you, serve you everyone his idols, and hereafter also, if you will not hearken to me. You're not going to really listen to me. You're not going to do anything about it. You're just going to sit there and warm a chair. He says, you might as well go follow your idols. There is coming a time where it says, let the unjust be unjust still, and let the just be just still. There's going to come a time, God says, when it's too late to worry about it. If you're, if you're just going to sit here and not do anything about this, just listen and not change, then you might as well just get out of here. As far as worshiping God, go worship your idols. Go ahead and do what you want to do. If you're not going to go wholehearted, if you're not going to do it with your might, don't bother. Because if you're laying a sin or lukewarm about it, I'll spew you out. He looks upon half-heartedness as rebellion. Because half-heartedness is the same as sitting on the fence. Half-heartedness is serving two masters. Christ made it very clear that you cannot serve two masters. Half your heart's here and half your heart's there. says, you might as well forget it. But you pollute, you, but pollute you my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, says the eternal God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me. There will I accept them. There will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. God is going to cause us to turn to him and give him everything that he is due. Some of us rebel about some of the things that God requires us to give him now. We don't like those scriptures or some things that he says to do that we simply rebel against and will not do. 
But at that time, he says, I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered, and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And you shall know that I am the Eternal, when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for the which I lifted up my hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall you remember your ways and all your doings wherein you have been defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. We're not going to completely get the picture, brethren, until God turns this thing around. And when he finally turns it around, we'll look at our level of righteousness and say, Oh, my God. And that's not a curse word put that way. We will loathe ourselves. And he says we will no longer be like filthy rags, but that our righteousness will be his righteousness, Isaiah 54. Be his righteousness. I mean, we can see it in part now, but we won't really see it until this thing turns around. So, he's going to have to do some things that show us that he really is God. We really can trust him, believe it. Verse 44, And you shall know that I am the Eternal when I have worked with you for my name's sake. Not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O you house of Israel, says the Eternal. Who's he working with today? Spiritual Israel, first of all. And we have to get the picture first. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south, and drop your word toward the south, and prophesy against the forest of the south field, and say to the forest of the south, now from our perspective, we don't have to worry. This is all about Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And any of you who came from there. <clears throat> Where does the south end? Northern Kentucky? I don't know. No, we have to look at this from the perspective of Ezekiel. He was north in Babylon. And the land of the south would have been Israel. So he's talking here to Israel, to Judah. Say to those of the south of where you are, Ezekiel, hear the word of the eternal. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you, and every dry tree. The flaming flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south and the north shall be burned therein. It's going to be total destruction of Israel. And all flesh, not just the church, but when this fire starts, beyond the fire that he started in the church, now he's going to set the whole of Israel on fire. And all flesh shall see that I, the Eternal, have kindled it, it shall not be quenched. Now that tells me that God is going to have to do something through those who will faithfully follow him in a dramatic fashion that will cause everyone else to know that it was God that kindled it. It wasn't the New World Order. It wasn't Vladimir Putin. It wasn't Hugo Chavez. It wasn't anybody you can name. It was God. He is going to make this known in such a way that no one can doubt that it was God indeed. 
going to be very dramatic. It's going to be something that will turn the world on its head. Even though they won't believe it or follow it. They will have to know it. In Noah's day, they did not believe it. They did not know it or follow it. But when the rain came, they knew it. And they died anyway. Then said I, Oh my God, <laughs> to use a more modern term, Oh Lord God, they say of me, does not he speak parables? What do you mean by all this? Now, in a way, I'm speaking some parables to you today. I'm saying it's going to be dramatic. I'm not telling you exactly how it's going to happen. But happen it will. I think I'm getting an inkling of some of the ways it will happen. I think if we keep reading the scriptures, we're going to see even more. How? But in the meantime, to some degree, until it happens, it'll be a little bit like a parable. Something that's a little bit hard to understand, to grasp, to get our mind around. But it's on its way. And when it happens, it'll be a parable no more. We'll know, and the world will know, that God is God. 